This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, my name is Mark Tui. Hello, Canada. This is a wonderful, a wonderful day. I'm here with you for the next uh, two hours. You were expecting Deb Hutton, but she had a she had a minor medical drama. She banged her foot really hard, and uh, turns out she's got to live and limp around with a with a, a, a boot on her foot. So she's not as mobile as she thought. So I'm sitting in today, and it looks like uh, tomorrow. My name is Mark Tui. Happy to have you with me. Coming up on the program, we are going to talk about a whole bunch of things that can be summed up in one theme. Stupid. And it is Municipal Election Day in Ontario. People across the province of Ontario going to the polls, much as in British Columbia they did a couple of weeks back, to elect mayors and reeves and chairs of some regional governments and city councillors. I don't think we have aldermen in, in Ontario, but if they're being elected school board trustees from the Catholic persuasion, the public non-Catholic persuasion, the separate school board persuasion, all of those jobs up for grabs today. And by all accounts, in most places, it's going to be boring as watching paint dry. So we'll get to that later in the evening. Not my problem. But I'm going to exhort you. I'm going to plead with you that if you have not yet cast your ballot in Ontario, please vote against stupid. Because there's too much stupid in our government. Uh, You know, Exhibit A. What have we got? Today. Uh, David Miller, former mayor of the city of Toronto, then he went on to be the uh, chairman, the Grand Poobah at the World Wildlife Fund, an environmentalist extraordinary. He and I don't see eye to eye on very many political issues, but I've always thought he was a pretty smart guy. But last night, he tweeted something that was possibly the stupidest thing I've ever seen him say. There was a bomb scare at the Billy Bishop Island Airport in Toronto. It's the tiny little airport that's on an island just off uh, Toronto's downtown core. So there's about a 50, 75-meter gap between the island and downtown Toronto. And it was famous during David Miller's first campaign because he promised to never build a bridge across that waterway because he wanted it. He doesn't like the island airport. That's fine. It's okay to not like the island airport. It's okay to, to, you know, advocate for its, you know, elimination, which has been his position for a long time. I don't agree with him, but that's a reasonable position to take if you believe in the worldview that David Miller takes. But yesterday evening, operations were ceased at the island airport because a bicycle was found with a suspicious package attached to it. Police believed that it could hold explosives. So they shut down the airport. They evacuated the island airport. They evacuated condominiums facing the area where the bomb was. All things that police do. Then they exploded the package safely. And it seems, although the police haven't said so, that maybe it didn't have explosives in it after all. But they did the prudent course. The island airport reopened this morning. David Miller tweeted last night, could have been real in an age of security worries. Why would we allow a downtown airport? There's a train to Pearson Airport, and it works just fine from downtown, let alone the greenhouse gas emissions from short-haul flights that could easily and effectively be replaced by rail. Well, that's just every kind of stupid. I mean, first of all, the island airport is not very commonly targeted for acts of terrorism. 
You know, we have had bomb threats and actual bombs that targeted the subway system, the Union Station, which is just, you know, a kilometer from the island airport where everybody who wants to take a train to go out to the airport has to go through half a million plus people a day go through there, regularly targeted with terror threats, as are City Hall, as are the downtown office towers, many of which hold government offices, including Canada's spy agency. Uh, we have had targets against the CN Tower, uh, threats against the CN Tower. We've had threats against uh, Scotiabank Arena downtown with, you know, tens of thousands of people in it. We've had threats against the uh, Sky Dome, which, uh, you know, all of these things are much juicier targets than the island airport. So getting taking the island airport away from downtown Toronto doesn't reduce the threat or the, the, the exposure at all. Secondly, if you, you know, the only people who fly from the island airport in downtown Toronto are people who, by and large, could walk there. So if they then have to go out to the main airport, they've got to get on a gas-guzzling bus or a diesel-chugging train to get all the way out to the regular airport, which is going to put lots of greenhouse gas emissions, and they have to get then on a big airplane, which emits more than the small plane. It, it doesn't make sense. And if you're worried about aviation accidents, as some people are, they don't want a downtown airport, well, you know, where would you rather an airplane crash? In the middle of a lake or in the middle of a suburb, which is what surrounds the other airport? I mean, there's nothing about that tweet that's not stupid. It's just an ex-politician who maybe wants to get back into the game or... Maybe he's just, you know, it's his pet peeve. It's late at night. Nobody puts a lot of thought into Twitter, including me. And, uh, you know, he's just trying to link an issue to something that's topical. I don't know. But it's just stupid. And we need less of it from politicians. So when you're voting today, if you're in Ontario, try to vote for somebody less stupid. You know, right now we've got a federal government that makes stupid gun laws. They don't like guns. Fair enough. They don't like hunters. They don't like recreational sports shooters. That's fine. I disagree with them, but you're allowed to have that opinion. They want to ban all legal firearms in Canada. I think that's not what I want, but that's what they want. But they're making laws that are stupid because the stupid laws that they're passing have nothing to, they, they won't accomplish what they think, what they say they will accomplish. They're banning guns based on their model number. That's like banning fax machines based on the model number. You know, if you want to ban guns, at least do it the right way. Say these features, these functions, this capability, we won't allow. That would be a smart way to do a dumb thing. But they're insistent on doing stupid. All you have to do as a manufacturer really is change the model number, change the color, change the way that the handle works, and then you comply with the law. It's just stupid laws. Landlords and tenants. We have a whole system in Ontario that sets up laws to regulate how landlords can deal with their tenants in rental accommodation that's based on the idea that the rental situation in Ontario is the same as it was 30 years ago. It is not. It's just stupid. We'll talk with people who are being victimized by this misunderstanding a little bit later in the show. We're going to talk about the latest coming out of the inquiry in Ottawa into whether or not the Emergency Act was appropriately used by the federal government or not in response to the COVID trucker convoy protests. Good. We'll bring you up to date on that. But you got to realize, too, that a lot of the reason why a lot of the people, not the hardcore nutcases who wanted to overthrow the government, there were some of those there, and they were instigators, absolutely. But there were a lot of people along for the ride because people were so fed up with stupid. 
No, there were laws being passed. There were regulations being passed. There were restrictions on freedoms being passed during COVID willy-nilly that just didn't make sense to them. And people got angry. They got frustrated. And there wasn't a politician. There wasn't a doctor. There wasn't anybody that could explain it in a way they could understand. When you're voting, try to vote for a little less stupid. Vote for somebody who can explain what they're thinking. Ottawa's politicians managing the police service. We're learning this from the Emergencies Act inquiry. You know, politicians hired a police chief in Ottawa to basically take a kinder, gentler, officer-friendly approach to policing. He did that. It didn't work. So they got involved. You know, you had the mayor of Ottawa. You had the uh, chief of the or the chair of the Ottawa Police Services Board taking a very hands-on approach, it seemed, at the time. And as we're learning now, sort of peeling away the onion, we're learning lots about who did what. And it seems they got frustrated with the chief that they'd hired. So they started intervening. Why would the police chief or why would the mayor of Ottawa be talking publicly as he was about specific numbers of police that they needed? Why would the chair of the police services board be talking about that? Every other politician everywhere else says, I can't tell the police what to do. And yet these people seem to be meddling. Let's vote for a little less stupid. And we'll talk about what's happening in the United Kingdom where the, the brand new, now no longer Prime Minister Liz Truss, she was elected with a promise of delivering stupid and she delivered stupid and now she's out of a job. My name is Mark Tui. You're listening to News Talk Today. We'll be back with a story of a tenancy, a rental situation gone horribly wrong. It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tui sitting in today. Pleasure to uh, talk with you and, uh, and share some information. This is a story that caught our eye at News Talk Today. It is another example, I think, of laws that are just stupid in 2022. It, it's landlord and tenancy law. And I will argue a little bit later that the laws were created in a system that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, we have this vision of landlords as big, bad, evil companies. You know, the old way that we used to rent homes was a big company would put up $100 million. They would build a huge building that they would own and they would rent 100 units to 100 individual renters. And the big company with all that money and all that power had all the leverage. And so we needed to protect renters against evil landlords. And so we created landlord-tenant laws. But that's not how it is done very often anymore. These days, by and large, you'll have a big company put up $100 million, build a big building, and they will sell it piece by piece, 100 units to 100 condo owners. And then the company makes its $100 million back. They move on to the next development, and it's left with a large condo that's owned by 100 different owners, many of whom rent to tenants. And they're not big, and they're not powerful, and they're not rich. And then you've got private properties that do the same thing. And yet our laws were written as if there was this big bad ogre that owned everything, and they were taking advantage of the poor little tenants. Well, some of the tenants aren't that poor, and some of the tenants aren't that nice. But our laws really haven't kept up. 
Plus, we have this landlord-tenant board that takes forever to make any decisions. You know, it used to be that they had 25 business days once they received an eviction request to hold a hearing and make a decision. Now they've just extended that to eight months, and they're still not performing on time. One of the people that are caught up in this mess, and it's costing them dearly, my guest is uh, a woman from uh, Gatineau, wants to be from Ottawa, named Elsie Kalu. And uh, she lived in Gatineau with her daughter. She wanted to move to Ottawa because she could access better health care services for her daughter in Ottawa. It would be more convenient. She rents a home in Gatineau. She decided that she could uh, scrape together some money. She bought a home in Ottawa, hoping to move into it. But the home came with a tenant, and the tenant refuses to leave. And so now Elsie is stuck with paying rent on the property that she's in where she has to leave soon because her lease is going to expire, and yet she's still paying mortgage on a property in Ottawa she can't move into, which was going to be her principal residence because the tenants that are already there won't leave, and it's cost her her job because she needs to maintain a positive credit check and trying to pay two bills has uh, caused her to you know rack up some loans. Elsie Callow, welcome to News Talk Today. Thank you very much. Hello. So what's your status now? You've, you own a home in Ottawa. It has tenants. You're trying to get them to leave. They refuse to leave. What are you doing? All right. Before I answer that, I'll just correct that I am in Ottawa at the moment. Okay. Where I'm renting is in Ottawa, and the home that I purchased is in Ottawa also. So... I had, but there, it's closer to a school district that my daughter was supposed to start this September. And we have started the process of getting her like therapy and everything because school has the support resources as well. Right. I actually just had a meeting with the principal um, last, just over a week ago. And they're like, we have all these resources we had prepared for Princess. When is she going to start? And the answer I gave them is, the only answer I know, I don't know, <laughs> because LTB has not even given me a date. It's so, all, almost seven months and counting. Wow. That is over six months of the tenants not paying rent. That's over six months of me coming up with over $2,800, almost $3,000 per month to right. pay for the tenants to leave for free. So, to harass me in the process and not to allow me to access the property. So not only is the tenant refusing to leave after you gave them notice, they're not paying in the meantime, so you're, that's costing you money. You mentioned the LTB, that's the Landlord-Tenant Board. You've applied to them for an eviction notice. You've said it's taken seven months so far. Do you have any hope? Is there a date yet set for a hearing? Yeah, it's over six months. There is no date at all. And once I applied to them, I'm made to pay the tenant compensation. So I'm paying my non-paying tenants. They don't pay rent, but I have to pay them one month compensation for them to leave, which I have done. They even came back with a lawyer and asked me to make corrections and pay the money immediately. And they happily accepted it, but they haven't said any date if they're going to leave. That's the tenant. And the Landlord and Tenancy Board has not even given me a date for the hearing. So I had followed up with what they call request to shorten time. That's just me appealing to them that I don't have this much money to keep paying for two houses, one of which I'm paying for strangers that I've never met, that I do need to get my day in court to at least 
present my case and get a hearing. Absolutely. And the the response I got was that my case is not the there's no prejudice against me and my case is not urgent enough. And I was wondering what could make it urgent enough? Is it my corpse? Is it my daughter's corpse? Because at this point it looks like that's the only options we are given. My daughter's mental health has totally deteriorated. If you had seen this four-year-old last year, she had full, luxurious hair. She has literally ripped it out with her own hands because she stopped getting therapy over four months ago. We cannot afford that. We have to use the money that this girl should have used to get therapy to pay for two adults to live for free. And so, so what is the prejudice they haven't seen that is not enough for them to grant me a hearing? Yeah, it's 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 almost unbelievable. And now you're living in rental accommodation. Are you going to be able to stay there until you sort this out or are you going to have to move? I don't know where I'm moving to. I should have moved since August when I couldn't pay rent and I was given an N4. So N4 is notice mm-hmm. for eviction for non-payment of rent because I couldn't afford to pay my own rent. But I had to go back and thankfully my landlord, well, considered the situation and she gave me a little bit of a leeway. But there is nowhere to move to. I have applied for housing and I've been told I need to get on the list for two years. (laughs) And yet you own a home. (laughs) Yet I'm paying for a home. I own my home that I'm paying for, but I cannot. I'm almost homeless. I have nowhere to live. Elsie, Kalu. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us. I think it puts a face on a problem that most people don't spend a lot of time thinking about. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. And my appeal to the LTB is please do not keep doing this. I might just be a number, one of the people, but I'm sure there are many people up there. People could commit suicide. That is the only option we are left with because nobody is listening to us. I'm just begging the government, please do something. It's just cruel. Elsie Callow, thank you for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, one of the beauties of talk radio, especially this program, is that I know for a fact that government decision makers listen to it. And so if you are a politician in the provincial government or the federal government or the municipal government, if you are in any way, shape or form, you know, an elected official or a civil servant, what are you going to do about this? This woman's name, Elsie Callu, she's in Ottawa. She, out of the, she's living in a rental home. She can't make the rent because she's purchased a home that she can't evict the people from because the government funded, the government established landlord-tenant board is incompetent. And it's overwhelmed with the amount of work and it takes far too long. It's months and months and months, if not years, in order to get you know anything moved through the Landlord Tenancy Board. So there's two problems here I see. One is our gut-level appreciation for what happens, how people rent, where the rental market is, no longer rings true. Yeah, there are still some apartment buildings. There's even a few being built that will be built for rentals. But most rental accommodation in the last 25 years in Ontario has, and most provinces across the country, has come from condos, private owners. So that doesn't ring true anymore. And the adjudication process is broken. Government, you need to fix this. You need to do it now. When we come back, what's happening in Ottawa with the protest inquiry?
Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, welcome back. Mark Tui hosting this afternoon here on News Talk today. This morning uh, started yet one more day of testimony in Ottawa with the the Public Order Emergencies Commission looking into the Emergencies Act activation during the uh, convoy protest in Ottawa and across the country earlier in the uh, COVID pandemic. The star attraction this morning was uh, Interim Ottawa Police Chief Steve Bell, who came in and took over after Peter Slowly, the police chief, resigned. Then they were looking at somebody else, uh, uh, but it ended up on the shoulders of Steve Bell, who was deputy chief there. And uh, one of the things that he said uh, today was that, you know, unlike what the Ontario Provincial Police Officers were saying last week, uh, there may have been intelligence that the OPP generated saying this could be a lengthy protest. That's not what they were hearing in Ottawa. When I read these reports, um, the, the specifics around the three-day event are very clear as it moves ahead. Uh, there is references that some small numbers would stay beyond that, but all of the information being gathered, uh, in, even in, ter- in terms of the priorities for the intelligence gathering, is specifically around that three-day period. Mackenzie Gray is with uh, CTV National News covering uh, Parliament Hill. Mackenzie, you've been watching uh, today's events. What else are we learning today? Well, we're just kind of reiterating what we've heard a lot so far, Mark, from the Ottawa police and from the OPP, too, that there were kind of two different views. The Ottawa police, on one hand, basically thinking that this was going to be some short-term little protest, uh, and the OPP giving multiple reports that were given to the Ottawa police, saying that, look, this is potential to be a long-term thing. You need to have a plan in place to deal with it. You know, we've we've heard from multiple other uh, members of the Ottawa Police Services, and now kind of Steve Bell being the most senior person who was there when the Emergency Act was brought in, was the head of the Ottawa Police once things were ended, and was, you know, basically second in command where Peter Slowly was the chief saying, look, you know, we didn't expect this to be happening. The, the key thing, though, Mark, in this is that Steve Bell's job was the head of intelligence. And if you had watched any of the stories that we had done on CTV, if you'd listened to any of the Bell media stations across the board, if you'd watched any of the social media for any of the protesters, or if you'd read any of the OPP reports that were going directly to the mailboxes of the senior people at the auto police services, they would have known that the core message of the protesters who were with the convoy was that they were not going to be leaving Ottawa until the mandates were lifted. So I am still unsure as to how Mr. Bell can come up now and say that, well, it was clear that it was only for three days. We knew that that was not going to be the case. There's some other key things, too, we've learned today, Mark, that you know, Steve Bell was saying that the protesters wanted to use the residents of downtown Ottawa's leverage to be able to kind of extract concessions out of um, the government. I think we kind of saw that later on when there was a deal between the convoy and Jim Watson, the, the mayor of Ottawa, that was struck. Uh, the other key thing, too, we got a look at a legal opinion that kind of formed kind of the core basis that allowed Ottawa police to not close streets off or, or made they made the decision not to close streets off to let the trucks come downtown. There was a legal opinion that says essentially uh, people can blockade for short periods of time. Uh, and when you look at how Ottawa police was approaching this, what I was saying before about how they were uh, expecting that it was going to be a short period of time, they used that legal opinion to allow the trucks come in. And this was clearly different between how Quebec City handled things when the protesters came a little later on after they had been encamped in Ottawa and how things were handled at Queen's Park, where trucks were moved along quickly and at Fame Park, they were towed away. So a couple of key things there. But really, Mr. Bell's message has been consistent with what we've heard from Ottawa police so far. 
And so Mackenzie Gray, uh, Steve Bell, the interim uh, chief of Ottawa police at the time, wa- or after Peter Slowly left, uh, also pointed out not only did they did he not really put much stock in the intelligence that it was going to be a drawn out affair, uh, he said this, suggesting that he expected it to be much more peaceful. They were people moving across the country, uh, determined to be heard, but they were they were peaceful. And they indicated that their intention was to be peaceful when they got here. That isn't what materialized, and that isn't what caused the consequence to our city. Uh, Mackenzie Gray, do you think that based on the testimony of the OPP officers last week, was there a difference of opinion on the peacefulness that they could expect? The OPP was a little hazy, Mark. They, in some of the reports, they'd said that there there were concerns about that, and then you know, uh, Superintendent Morris from the OPP had testified saying that it was peaceful. So they they were a little wishy washy and kind of contradicting themselves on that. But put the OPP stuff aside. Take the protesters at their word. Pat King was a key organizer with this. Said that this needed to end in a hail of bullets. Canada Unity folks who were coming down here with their memorandum of understanding, trying to overthrow the government by saying that the Governor General and the Senate needed to come into some kind of coalition with the NDP, the Conservatives in the bloc to overthrow Justin Trudeau. These are serious, serious things that needed to be taken seriously, and it was clear that the Ottawa police were not willing to do that. Yes, there were bouncy castles. Yes, there were saunas. Yes, there were hot tubs. But there were also 533 charges, including 20 assault charges, many of which were assault charges against police officers, and 10-plus weapons charges, including a weapons charge of taking a weapon off of a police officer. These are serious charges. So once again, we see that the Ottawa police was completely unable to be able to handle this on one end, but they were unable to handle it because they did not take the precautions up front to be able to deal with things properly, which put it, the government into a situation, the federal government into a situation where there was even a conversation to be had about whether or not the Emergency Act needed to be used. Mackenzie Gray, uh, before I let you go, when can we expect to hear from former uh, Chief of the Ottawa Police, Peter Slowly himself? We're expecting to hear from him uh, later on this week. The, the, it is relatively fluid at the commission. The days go for a long period of time, particularly with Steve Bell today. We're expecting there to be a lot of cross-examination. But look, we're going to hear from Peter Slowly, and that will kind of wrap up the kind of municipal portion where we've heard from a lot of municipal leaders, we've heard from police, uh, and then we'll move into the convoy leadership, which I'm very interested in. And then at the end of the commission, Mark, we're going to be hearing from Justin Trudeau, Christopher Freeland, and a number of other cabinet ministers on the federal government response to this. Mackenzie Gray from CTV National News, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I am learning an enormous amount. And I'm, I, look, I'm not slavishly following the live video feed from this inquiry in Ottawa, but I am following on Twitter some of the journalists who are sitting in, or in fact, they're just across the hall in the media room because it's more comfortable, but they're following this thing in real time. And I'm learning something every day. Uh, and the structure of this, this is not a political uh, kabuki theater. This is not a parliamentary committee where the pol- it's, it's politicians running the show. And so they all have, have points to make and messages to repeat. This is run by a judge and it's lawyers asking questions on behalf of different interested parties. But the evidence is backed up in many cases by documents and I'm learning stuff all the time. And uh, for example, last week we learned that there was no integrated command post where all of the different police forces came together until the 15th of February. That was the same day that Peter slowly resigned. That should have been job one. You know, I've never been a cop, but I have worked with about a dozen police forces as a consultant and as an army officer, and I was an army officer for a long time, involved in operational planning and operational leadership. 
job one, unity of command. You bring all of these police forces that are, even if you're not working together in Ottawa alone, you've got the Ottawa Police Service, you've got the RCMP on the Hill, you've got the Parliamentary Protective Service, you've got the city resources. There should They have an emergency operations center. They have procedures and protocols. They know how to work together. They just chose not to. So that was ridiculous. If they had done that, they would have been much better sharing of intelligence because they would have been sitting in the same room and somebody would have said, uh, wait a minute, that's not what we're hearing, could have avoided a lot of problems. But this is part of the police culture. And I've worked not only, as I said, as a soldier alongside police officers, but I've worked as a management consultant to police chiefs in a number of different services. And the big problem that they face is they have an insular culture. They do not like working with other police forces. They are extremely jealous. They are incredible rivals. They don't want to work together. And you saw that in the testimony last week. The According to other people, putting words in the mouth of Peter Slowly, so it'll be interesting this week to hear from him directly, he did not trust the OPP or the RCMP or the Ministry of the Solicitor General, the Attorney General. They don't ever trust each other. They don't like to work together. They have to be forced together. Anytime they work together, there's a huge press conference announcing a wonderful joint policing effort because they hate it. And because they hate outsiders, it's not surprising to me that Peter Slowly was getting a rough ride from his own officers because they don't want anybody from outside coming in. I've talked to police chiefs across the country who don't like people coming from the Toronto Police Service because they have their own way and they won't let go of how they do it. Each police service thinks it is better and knows best. And that's not how you work in a joint environment. There's so many things that are being confirmed and learned here. It's fascinating to watch. When we come back to News Talk today, well, we'll talk about what is going on somewhere else. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, welcome back. My name is uh, Mark Tui. Just uh, chuckling to myself, my extra from the last segment, if you heard it, was a little awkward. Uh, Reveal a little bit behind the the kimono here. We work on a uh, Google document that is uh, a live document between myself and producer Samantha Pope and the technical operator uh, Tony Tedesco. And so as I was about to sell ahead, uh, what I thought was about to happen in this segment was being replaced in real time with a guest that we were able to land at the last minute and fit in and a story that we wanted to bring to you. And so it was, I don't know what we're going to talk about next, but it'll be a about something somewhere else. Anyway, that is the magic of radio explained in an embarrassing uh, insight. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the United Kingdom because Britons have a brand new prime minister. And no, this is not a rerun. This is a live show. They have yet another new uh, prime minister. The last one, Liz Truss, lasted 44, 45 days, approximately for Anthony Scaramucci's. Uh, so they went back to the well. She didn't work out. She promised a bunch of stupid stuff. She started to deliver stupid stuff. It turned out the stupid stuff was stupid and nobody wanted it. And it caused enormous chaos in the United Kingdom. So they've dumped her and they went through a very quick expedited process of picking a new leader 
leader. The, uh, there was some question about whether Boris Johnson was going to throw his hat back into the ring, but he decided not to. In the end of the day, there were only two parliamentarians, uh, members of parliament, interested in it. And uh, when one of them got more support... The other one bowed out, leaving them with a brand new, soon to be sworn in at some point, uh, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Rishi Sunak. This is the announcement by British Conservative Party official Sir Graham Brady. I can confirm uh, that we have received one valid nomination. Rishi Sunak is therefore elected as leader of the Conservative Party. That is literally tub-thumping right there. Uh, Joining us to figure out who the heck is Rishi Sunak, Jeremy Kinsman's a former High Commissioner for Canada to the United Kingdom from 2000 to 2002. Uh, Mr. Kinsman, welcome to News Talk today. Hi, nice to be part of your radio magic, Mark. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so I don't know that you were there when uh, Rishi Sunak was a thing, because he's only been around, I think, electorally since 2015. No, he was, but... a, he was a kid. He was a kid. He's yeah. only 42. So who is this guy? Uh, who is this guy? Well, uh, he is a little more transparently visible uh, than his predecessor, Liz Truss. They didn't know her at all, but... Uh, they saw him once they got to know her, they didn't like. I think they'll like him a lot. He's um, he's very, very smart. He's very slim and athletic. Um, he's very well-spoken. Uh, he went to, you know, a wonderful uh, private school and to Oxford and then to Stanford, worked for Goldman Sachs, all of that stuff, and he married a billionaire's daughter from India. Uh, so, so far, he's the golden boy. Uh, he came into politics. He uh, was the chancellor of the Exchequer, which is what they call their minister of finance. And he was a pretty good one uh, until in July he pulled the plug and quit because uh, he had real policy disagreements with the volatile uh, Boris Johnson. And his quitting precipitated his demise, Johnson's demise, and uh, created the crisis, which led to the uh, choice of Liz Truss over Rishi Sunak by the 200,000 members of the Conservative Party, who, by the way, don't look like uh, the uh, members of the British public uh, all that much. They're much more wealthy and white, I have to say, and southern and uh, older and indeed uh, right-wing than the public at large. And they liked what they thought they heard from Liz Truss. But then the markets heard some more from her, as you said, stupid led to stupid, and, uh, and uh, tanked, uh, the British pound tanked, investment tanked, uh, interest rates shot up, people's mortgage payments shot up. The public was, you know, almost uh, so anxious. It was, it was beyond dismay. And as you say, she quit. So they had a rerun. Johnson came in uh, thinking, ha-ha, I'm coming back. I knew they'd want me sooner or later, but you know what? They didn't. Because when he quit six weeks ago, his disapproval rating was at 68%. And uh, the uh, his fellow uh, conservative MPs, uh, who, you know, I wouldn't say more than anything in life, but pretty high up in their priorities to get reelected, looking at the polls, saw the party was at 14%. 
Uh, nothing he has done since he quit uh, is going to change that dial. Uh, maybe Sunak will. He's a new face. Uh, he's smart. He's young. Uh, he's moderate. Uh, his economic prescriptions really will make sense uh, for the markets. Um, of course, uh, this government uh, and its predecessors have been in power for a long time. The country really wants a change. They believe Sunak, of course, isn't elected by the people, uh, just by his fellow members, as was trust, that it's time for a new prime minister to get a new mandate. Johnson's biggest talking point was that, after all, the last major mandate they had was from the election in December uh, 2019, which he won in a sweep. And so if anybody could resist the call for a general election in which they'd be clobbered, it's him. So Jeremy Kinsman. Jeremy Kinsman, former High Commissioner for Canada to the UK. We're almost uh, out of time here, but Rishi Sunak, the the press there call him Dishy Rishi, as you point out. He's very well-dressed. Comes from a working-class family, but had an upper-class education, married into wealth, uh, knows his way around money, uh, was the former finance minister. Is he enough of a change, do you think, to go to the electorate for a new mandate in short order and win another term for the Conservatives? No, he has said he won't. I mean, he knows that that would be very faithful. He's going to uh, ask for a fair chance. And I think the British, who are desperate uh, to get some relief from their anxiety over inflation, the economy, and everything else, are probably willing uh, to give it to him. So I think that'll be the picture. And uh, we'll see. He's going to have a tough time bringing unity to his very fractious, divided party, which, by the way, is the oldest political party in the world. So you can't go on forever and ever, right? But uh, he'll 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 probably get a pretty good pretty good shot. I don't think it'll be enough to uh, to overturn the, the polls completely, but he'll bring them back within a competitive range. When does he have to go for an election? Just out it. I think uh, I'm counting. Uh, it's got to be 2023. Okay. Uh, let's say the end of 2023. Maybe he could stretch it to very early 2024. And, you know, they say uh, 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 a week's a long time in politics. <laughs> what a week he's had. But on the other hand, you know, they say a year is a short time in politics. <laughs> there you go. So, Jeremy Kinsman, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yep. You bet. Bye-bye. Uh, Mr. Kinsman is former High Commissioner Ambassador for Canada to the United Kingdom. Uh, we called them High Commissioners, not Ambassadors, because we were all once part of the same empire. And so you didn't have ambassadors within the British Empire. You had High Commissioners in that kind of stock. Anyway, we're going to take a short break here on News Talk today. When we come back, two questions. What the heck happened in China over the weekend and how does it affect me? And two, is giving away free drugs the answer? Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tui with you uh, today. A pleasure to be talking with you. Coming up uh, later this hour, we're going to talk about an interesting initiative out of uh, British Columbia where they are. There's a group called a Compassion Club that is actually buying 
narcotics for addicts and giving testing them to make sure that they're safe or there's no safe narcotic but to make sure that they're not you know perverted by uh, you know by some type of contaminant and then giving them free to users to save their lives and fight the epidemic of opioid overdoses that is killing thousands of people across this country every year. They make an interesting argument. We'll tell you what that is and take your thoughts about that later in the program. But right now, uh, this weekend was the, uh, I think it happens every five years, the Grand Congress of the Communist Party of China. No surprise that uh, they re-elected Xi Jinping as the party chairman as for the uh, for another 5 years and I don't know if it's unprecedented or not but it's unusual for them to have a third term but he has been ratcheting down his grip on power in China for a long time and he replaced uh, the senior party leadership with uh, his uh, henchmen if you will uh and uh and something odd happened on the floor of the convention yesterday so we wanted to talk with somebody who follows Chinese politics much more closely than I do, and he joins us now. Charles Burton is a senior consultant on Chinese affairs to agencies of the Government of Canada, and he's a senior fellow with Macdonald Laurier Institute. Charles, welcome to News Talk today. Good to speak with you, Mark. So I'll get to sort of the, the grander picture of what happened uh, at this party congress and what it means for me <laughs> and everybody else in Canada and around the world. But I wanted to zero in on an event that happened just after they opened the doors to the press. Uh, Mr. Uh, Hu Jintao, who used to be the leader of the Communist Party, he ran China for 10 years before Xi Jinping, and he was seated in a place of honor, the front row next to uh, Mr. Xi, And two attendants came up to him, didn't look like they were expected by him. One of them tried to lift him out of his chair, uh, which Mr. Hu resisted. He then stood up by himself, had a conversation with the attendant, said a few words to Xi Jinping, the current leader of China, who just kind of gave him a cursory nod. And then he was escorted out of the room, which, of course, got tongues wagging because nothing happens in politics anywhere by coincidence, and certainly not in China, where everything is stage-managed to, you know, the finest detail. What was going on there? Well, you know, they they did this uh, forced removal of Mr. Xi's predecessor, Hu Jintao, just as the international media was let into the Great Hall of the People in Beijing to uh, see the ending, closing ceremony of the 20th Congress. And so, you know, clearly this was something that they wanted the world to see. I mean, if they had uh, removed Mr. Hu, say, prior to the press coming in, like five minutes before, then you would have seen an empty chair next to Mr. Xi and might have assumed that perhaps Mr. Hu, as an older gentleman of age 79, might have decided to go home early or something. But this was uh, Xi Jinping's bodyguard, head of his bodyguard unit, coming in and frog marching mar- marching the previous Chinese president, general secretary of the party and chairman of the Central Military Commission off the um, off the Presidium, Mr. Xi smiling benignly as this was going on. Clearly, it wasn't a surprise to Mr. Xi and all the other members of the senior communist leadership, eyes forward, <laughs> staring straight out and pretending as if nothing is happening that's untoward here. So, 
You know, it, it is worrying, and I think it's sending out a signal that Mr. Xi is not going to allow any alternative centers of power in China and any notion that there might have been that people who are unhappy with Mr. Xi's domestic and international policies could rally around the previous senior leader. Um, you know, is has been trashed. And it's very humiliating for Hu Jintao and very much against Chinese norms of respect for older people and the norms for treatment of former political leaders. You know, in the old imperialist system, when a new emperor came, the old emperor was allowed to live out his life in distinguished retirement, writing the the history of his dynasty. But in this case, uh, Mr. Mr. Hu has been publicly humiliated. And I think a lot of people in China will feel that this was a step too far, that Mr. Xi was obviously angry with Mr. Hu and his faction for deigning to suggest that maybe Mr. Xi doesn't have penetrating insight into everything, which is, you know, the formula for Chinese supreme leaders and um, and causing this uh, brutal and shameful incident to occur during this uh, important party congress. So uh, Xi Jinping really sort of closed his fist on power by realigning the, uh, the, the ultimate, the top level of, uh, of party officialdom to nothing but sort of zealots and, and acolytes for himself. Is this then a signal because uh, Hu Jintao who preceded him, the man who was escorted out so unceremoniously, he had opened up China a little bit and sort of uh, ushered in a, an era of economic growth, a little bit of relaxation of sort of communist doctrine to allow a little bit more entrepreneurialism. Is this uh, the current uh, man in charge just reaffirming to the world that that's we're not going backwards, we're going nothing but forward? Yeah, I mean, we certainly know from his speech that um, Mr. Xi's priority is internal security, you know, increasing censorship and surveillance, all those um, face recognition cameras everywhere and complete suppression of any political dissidents domestically, uh, plus the um, their global program of achieving what he describes as the community of the common destiny of mankind, which is about China becoming the dominant power on the planet and all the rest of us becoming subordinate to this vision. You know, Mr. Xi has a, like Mr. Putin, spends a lot of time reading history about when China was the middle kingdom and, you know, the sole political authority on the entire, for the entire planet, according to traditional Chinese norms. So we see that. And in the meantime... Are, are we going to, are we ultimately, Charles Burton, is there going to be a showdown between China and the West in a in a potentially dangerous way? The chief of defense staff in Canada says China's already at war with us on economic and communication means. Um, you know, are we inevitably going to come to some type of conflict with China? I, I think that as long as Mr. Xi is there, surrounded by, as you say, yes men and sycophants with this um, you know, megalomaniac really vision of the world that uh, that is the direction things are heading without question. He's strengthening overseas Chinese work. So expect much more police activity by the Chinese state and other subversive activities inside Canada. And he wants to improve China's command of technology and military um, uh, the latest military stuff to, to challenge the West. And he's hostile actively hostile to the United States and the existing global order. So, you know, what do we do if he decides to annex democratic Taiwan against the will of its people? What do we do if he if he 
tries to force the U.S. out of Japan and Korea, where they have uh, military forces stationed. You know, we really have to be thinking about whether our current Canadian policy of putting the emphasis on building prosperity with China through trade and investment and ignoring China's um, geostrategic schemes and genocide and and um, cyber espionage and so on in Canada is worth it, you know, and we should really get into alignment with the United States, the UK and Australia and put our resources into trying to defend the um, international rules-based liberal order that, you know, middle powers like Canada really benefit from if we don't you know, start to, to to wake up to this soon, China may tip the balance and, and uh, you know, we may find ourselves not only in a difficult position economically, mm-hmm. but our security and sovereignty also compromised. Charles Burton, Senior Consultant on Chinese Affairs to Agencies of the Government of Canada, Senior Fellow, Macdonald Laurier Institute. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to speak with you, Mark. Some very interesting questions uh, Charles Burton uh, posed there. I hope uh, the government is uh, listening. When we come back, is it time to treat the opioid epidemic like an emergency? Staying on the story. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, welcome back. It is Mark Tui with you today. Hope you will uh, follow me on Twitter at Tui, T-O-W-H-E-Y. We're going to take your texts, and we are going to open up the lines right now, 1-855-633-1010. You can text me at 71010. This after a story I was reading about an initiative in Vancouver. The group is called the Drug User Liberation Front, and the uh, front woman, Eris Nix, uh, dresses like she is a commando from the Vietnam War, wearing tiger-striped camouflage and a jaunty beret with combat boots. And uh, that's because she's helping to fight the war on overdoses there. Nearly 31,000 Canadians have died from overdoses since January of 2016. That was the year that British Columbia declared overdoses an epidemic, a public health emergency. The Public Health Agency of Canada says the toxicity, the potency of the drugs continues to be a major driver of the crisis. And yet, what are we doing about this? I think 4,000, 4,500 Canadians last year died from drug overdoses, opioid overdoses. If there were 4,500 people dying in uh, airplane crashes or car crashes or from any other illness, I think we would wake up and pay attention. And it's not just people who are down and out on Skid Row or the downtown east side in Vancouver or, you know, the worst uh, economically disadvantaged parts of any of our major cities. These are not just people who are, you know, woefully addicted, living hard on the streets. These are people who use drugs recreationally, people who pop pills at a party, who hold down jobs. Sometimes those pills are perverted. They're polluted with other intoxicants, things that increase the potency, reduce the safety, things like fentanyl or carfentanyl. And people are dying thinking that they're just smoking weed with fentanyl, not to their knowledge, that's been sprinkled in to give it a bigger kick so that people will become addicted to it and come back to the same supplier. Fentanyl's cheap and it kills people. 
Now, the solution put forward by this uh, organization, Drug Users Liberation Front in Vancouver, is controversial. And I'd like your thoughts on it. They are at what they are doing. They've created what they call a compassion club. And regular users of opioid narcotics, things like heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, they can join this club and the club will procure illegal drugs for them on the dark web. They will test them to make sure that they know what's in them and to make sure that things like fentanyl and other pollutants are not in them. And then they will give them to members of the club. They don't even charge for them. It's free drugs. All you have to do is be 19 years old, join the club. Other than that, no questions asked. You know, my gut reaction is this is the wrong way to go. But when I think about it, and one of the things that one of them said in an interview kind of gave me pause. They said, why can't we treat this emergency like it's an emergency? Why can't we treat epidemic, this epidemic of addiction and overdoses like it was a hurricane? You know, during the COVID pandemic, we changed the rules. We found pathways through the regulations to speed up things. Procurement of masks and personal protective equipment, approvals of uh, vaccines. We moved heaven and earth to get through the obstacles that we ourselves had put in place to make it work so that we could save people's lives. In Afghanistan, the government moved heaven and earth to get through its own ridiculous morass of procurement rules so that it could get our soldiers on the ground the equipment that they needed to fight and win the war, or at least to fight the war and stay alive. Why can't we take the same approach? Hurricane Fiona. You know, we're moving heaven and earth to deal with the problem on the ground as it is. Their argument is, why won't we take the same approach with this epidemic that's killing thousands of our brothers, our sisters, our parents, our children every year in Canada? And they're arguing the best way to do that is to make sure that they are using the drugs they think they're using. So if it costs us money to give them away for free... Better that than thousands of people die. Better that than millions, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars spent in ambulances and emergency care and hospitals trying to keep them alive after they've overdosed. I think they have a good point. Do you think this makes sense for at least the limited scope? Maybe you just do it in British Columbia to start to see how it works. Give away drugs that are tested and proven safe for free. Let me know. one 1010 I think it is an idea worth discussing. Marie in Mississauga, Ontario, what do you say? Oh, Mark, I am just listening with my heart pumping, hearing what you're saying. That's exactly what's been needed for years. My son, Corey, died four years ago from a fentanyl poisoning. He didn't overdose. And most of them are not overdosing. That's a misconception. He was far too smart. He knew how much to take. He did not overdose. They are being poisoned by fentanyl and carfentanil. Yeah, and they don't know that it's in there. Have no concept. He was relapsing. That's another sad point to this. These are people that are, have gotten clean. It can be weeks, days, months, years. And they relapse. And they die. 
there's 16 and 18 year old children in Mississauga that are experimenting and they die. Yeah. 31,000 Canadians. It is being stuffed down because of stigma, because of the image of what we have in our heads of a heroin addict. And what it's called now is a substance user. It's a disease. And my son was poisoned. So we need the, the, we need it out on the streets immediately. Peel Region just approved a safe consumption site after I went up with my poster of my beautiful son. And we got approval. And it's going to save thousands of lives here in Mississauga and Peel Region. Marie? So people have to start listening. And thank you for what you just finished saying. Marie, thank you very much for sharing your story about your son, Corey. And I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah, this is an emergency. The question is, are we going to stand by the rules that we created for normal life, or are we going to recognize that we are in a major crisis and we need to do something a little bit different, at least to keep people alive? I'm kind of now coming down on the side that we need to do something extraordinary. Your calls at one 855 Keep calling. We'll take them through the break, but we can squeeze in Adam before the break. Adam, i got about 60 seconds. Go ahead, sir. What this lady is doing, testing the drugs and giving it, it's the exact same concept. It's pretty much like a pharmacy. Doctor prescribes you, and that's all you can take. If you take any more, it's probably unsafe, right? Prescription can kill you, too. Yeah, and uh, and people have been overprescribed uh, in the past, and so you're right. In this case, you don't need a prescription, but you do need to uh, – you, know, you need to be 19, and you need to be part of the club. So they have some knowledge of whom you are. I like it. Thanks very much, Adam. I appreciate your call. Uh, we're at News Talk uh, today. My name is Mark Tui. You can call us right now at one 1010 I've got time to squeeze in Doug at the airport. i got about 30 seconds for you. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, I think that this is all going to come down to where these centers are actually set up. If you're planning on setting these centers up, like right on the middle of Hastings Street, then I'm going to say, no, it's a ridiculously bad idea because these are not the people that are salvageable. If you're going to set these centers up, you know, maybe up in the British properties or somewhere in another area of British Columbia to start where you have economical, stable families and people that have better opportunity to bounce back from these addictions, then I think that we should. But to just throw good money at bad in areas where we are never going to be able to make headway, then it is a very, very ridiculous uh, option and proposition to do this because those people will not come back from the fringes of society. Thanks, Doug. I appreciate that. Doug, harsh words from Doug. Now, I think part of the problem is, you know, and one of the reasons why I was never a big fan of safe injection sites is because we kind of kind of had the cart before the horse. We don't have places for the thousands of Canadians who want to kick drugs. We don't have places for them to go for to be detoxified and rehabilitated. We're starting to build those, but we'll take your calls. one 855 are free drugs for addicts, the answer to fighting the epidemic of opioid overdoses. Staying on the story. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tui. Thanks for listening. This story out of Vancouver, where a compassion club has been set up 
to help fight the rampant number of deaths in that city particularly. It is ground zero for Canada's opioid epidemic. And uh, across Canada, in, since 2016, 31,000 Canadians have died. It keeps getting higher. Last year, I think it was 4,500 Canadians died in a year from overdoses, doses, or as one caller said, poisonings uh, from narcotics. In many cases, these are addicts who use heroin. They live on the street. They are at their lowest ebb, furthest out on the margins from society. But in many cases, these are professionals. These are high school kids. These are college kids. These are kids that are living, you know, their best lives and they're party drug users. They'll take a pill. They'll smoke a joint. And to their, without their knowledge, that pill or that cannabis joint has been adultered with fentanyl or carfentanyl. And they don't know that. And it kills them the first time they try it. That's what we're dealing with in this country. And the one thing I'll say about this group, which is buying illegally, these people are breaking the law. They know if they get caught and they get prosecuted, they could go to jail for life as drug dealers. But they are purchasing narcotics. They're purchasing heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, and they are testing it to make sure that it is as safe as those drugs can be, meaning it's not adultered with something else that's not supposed to be in there that people don't know is in there. And they're giving them to addicts who are part of the club. To join the club, you have to be 19. You have to live nearby. Obviously, this is in Vancouver. And uh, there are really no other questions asked. They're trying to erase the stigma but give people a safe supply of narcotics that probably are less likely to kill them because they don't have other stuff in them. What do you say? one 855 They're arguing that this is an emergency. We need to set aside some of the normal rules and make it safer for people while we try to do other things. And I think that's the important uh, part of the conversation. On the uh, text board, people are saying things like uh, at 71010, you can text in as well. You play, you pay. Um, somebody says, isn't it cheaper to have a dead addict than a live one? Well, actually, no. I mean, if we're going to just make a decision based on economics, it is cheaper to not let them die and to then ultimately get them off their addiction. Because it costs a fortune to try to keep somebody alive. It does. The, you know, the ambulance costs, the intervention costs, the ER costs, the fact that they might be back again next week. It costs a fortune to keep somebody alive when they're a substance abuser who is overdosing or being poisoned by something that they didn't know they're taking. So on a purely economic basis, this makes sense. I'm not a big fan of just supervised injection sites for the same reason that some people have raised on the tax board, which is, you know, so you're keeping somebody alive for another day. But I think where I've been convinced, perhaps, by this argument is that this is an emergency. In a hurricane, we waive the normal procurement rules. We waive where you're allowed to park. We waive where you're allowed to sleep. We put in emergency rules to get us through the emergency. We did the same thing during COVID. We did the same thing with the military during Afghanistan. We do it routinely during forest fires and earthquakes and all of these natural disasters and man-made disasters. So if we're also going to put money into treatment centers so that people who want to get clean can then I think it makes sense to treat this like an emergency. And if we gave people free drugs that were safe, fewer people would die. And so ultimately, we would be able to catch up and maybe move forward as a society. Keith in Mississauga, what do you say? Uh, you know, I, I, I want to give you a correction. We, we do need safe injection sites, 
but not maybe the kind that you're thinking of, and it will be cheaper. Oh, I'm okay with but safe injection sites. I'm just not. Well, the problem is I, we I, only I'm have so many about. dollars, and so, like, I want to see us put more money as society into treatment. But I want to ask you this. The injection, if, if you look to Sweden, and they allow people to check out in a safe little casket, actually, they have, you press a button, you hit the gas, away you go. What do you incentivize someone to get out of bed and do with their lives after 10, 20 years of addiction? The workforce doesn't want them. Family and friends have been burnt from, from bridges with them. Like, this is the real problem you're up against. How do you incentivize somebody who's thrown their life away to all of a sudden pick up their life and go on with it tomorrow just because they're free of free and sober? You know, Keith, that's I think that's a, a that is a good point. That's a long-term question, and I don't think that's the question we're here to talk about today, but you're absolutely right. I mean, how do you keep somebody who's decided maybe they want to get treatment? How do you keep them sober? Because that's not easy, and it's a long-term problem. John and Keswick, go ahead, sir. Yeah, I think we need to attack it from uh, the criminal point of view. And the people or organizations that are lacing the drugs with fentanyl, it needs to be treated like murder because they know they're killing people. Yeah, I agree. I, th- go, I agree with. Thanks. To go away for a long time. Thanks, John. I agree that we need to do more on the people that are doing this because they know they're killing people, and we know that most of these drugs are coming from China. Where, quite frankly, probably they don't care if they're killing people here because they're kind of at war. We just talked about that in the last segment, uh, but we have to do something in the meantime to stop the loss. So I think it needs to be multifaceted. Sure, let's take a harder a line on criminality and put drug dealers and manufacturers in jail for long periods of time. But giving away free drugs might actually put some of them out of business. Yvonne, go ahead. Hi. So basically I want to say that, uh, you know, this this is a club. And uh, I think it was the caller before, the one, uh, not the one from Keswick, but the one before, he talked about incentivizing things, right? And, uh, you know, relationships are what bring people forward out of addiction, right? Yeah, There's yep. got to be something that they want. They got. They have to, if you can remember in your own life, somebody who helped you, you always remember that person. And sometimes it's just somebody random, and sometimes it's somebody like these people. So they're keeping them alive, not sober, but sober is a choice that you make through relationship uh, with somebody with yourself and for people who are Christian, with God. Yeah. Thanks very much, uh, Yvonne. I appreciate your call. A lot of people uh, texting in talking about, well, what about diabetics? Uh, My insulin's not free. I'll die without it. Uh, What about alcoholics? My alcohol's not free. I'm a gambler. My gambling's not free. Uh, That's true. I'm a, I, I have had a couple of heart attacks and my heart drugs aren't free and they're expensive to the point that I stopped taking them for a long time because I couldn't afford them. But you know what? There aren't 4,500 people a year dying of uh, you know, not having you know, the insulin that they need. This is a crisis. I think we need to treat it like one and it might need exceptional measures to get ahead of it. doesn't mean these laws have to stay on the books forever, but we need to do something different because what we're doing isn't working. Paul in Niagara Falls. Hey, how you doing today? I'm well, thanks. What do you think? Very good. Well, I was just uh, making a comment and a thought about, uh, you know, we streamline crime into the court system and everyone has the right to a speedy trial. And, you know, we put these people in mega prisons and everything. Why can't we do a similar system with uh, addiction? Streamline these guys or people into uh, some type of recovery. 
get picked up on the street, either high or using drugs, or doing a crime that's facilitating your need for drugs, then why don't we put these people into a mandatory, like, three-day recovery? And then the second time they get picked up, it's a 10-day and a 30-day and so on and so forth. And eventually they will, you know, the system itself will kind of uh, fix a bunch of problems. One will be crime for the, uh, you know, the contribution of these people's uh, habits or, or paying for these people's habits. You will solve some sort of homelessness, I'm sure, by cleaning up the streets and people not living on the streets. And you'd also solve the addiction part, part of the addiction problem. Yep. There's always going to be a amount of people that don't want your help and don't want to rec- be, have recovery, yeah. but, you know, you can't catch them all, right? Thanks, Paul. I appreciate that. I think Paul raises a good point, and uh, until we're ready to do that, the uh, chief of the Victoria Police Service was uh, on my on News Talk tonight a few weeks back saying that, you know, he was advocating for mandatory involuntary treatment for people with mental illness and uh, and substance abuse residential stuff, locked away in a building to get the treatment that they need. Maybe as a society, we need to recognize that that might be the, the, the stronger love to force people into treatment, even if they don't want it, at least to get them to the point where they realize they can live without drugs. Relapse is always going to be a problem, but at least don't we owe them that? Anyway, my name is Mark Chewy. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. When we come back, would you like a DNA kit for your kids so that if they get abducted or shot, you'll know who they are. It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, if you want to hear something that you missed uh, earlier in the program, you can uh, always listen back to any part of it. Download and subscribe to the News Talk Today podcast and the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your podcasts uh, and keep listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network. There was some good uh, talk with Charles Burton, uh, an expert on China, about what actually happened in China during the 20th uh, Communist Party Congress. Some fascinating stuff. A guy got frog marched out, the former leader of China. That was not happened. That did not happen by accident. He explains why it happened and, and what it meant. And if you wanted to listen to our last conversation about uh, whether we should be giving away free drugs to addicts, uh, that's also the place to check it out. iHeartRadio uh, podcast. News Talk Today podcast is the one you want to Google for. My name is Mark Tui, uh, sitting in with you today and tomorrow, enjoying our conversation. Let's continue. one 1010 Here's a question for you. There's an opinion column, an editorial, actually, in Washington Post today that takes a few shots at the state of Texas. Texas passed a law in 2021 uh, establishing what they call a child identification program. Parents can opt into it. It's a free program. It's entirely voluntary. And if you opt into it, the police will give you or the government will give you a kit where you can take a swab of your child's cheek to collect some DNA, put it in a little uh, test tube, put it in the kit. You can take fingerprints of your kids. You can take a photograph of your kids. You put it in the kit. And then if the police need to find your child, you can give that information to them. And the critics, including the editorial board at Washington Post, are saying, this is just Texas being Texas. I think parents, some of them, some of you might actually want this. Let me know, one 855 
1010. The Washington Post editorial says, now nah, this is Texas being Texas. This is Texas, a state that loves guns, that has lots of gun massacres in its schools, that's just sort of saying, look, you know, it's very hard sometimes to identify the remains of people after a mass shooting. And so we want to make our jobs easier. So we want you to collect DNA from your kids who might be victims so that we can figure out who they are afterwards. And they're saying they should put more money into preventing the tragedy than into identifying the remains. It's a horrific, grisly image that they're painting in the pages of the Washington Post newspaper. They're saying Texas is just being Texas, don't care about the kids, just want to make their lives easier. Do you agree? one 855 Because this reminds me of a program that was quite popular in Canada, in Toronto, where I live. When I had young kids, we were approached by different groups, including the police, including a group called Child Find, that basically handed out these kits. They didn't have DNA, but you could have a, you could go to, as Ben has texted in, uh, in the 90s, uh, in, you could go to a Kmart, and they would set up tables. You could have a Polaroid photo taken of your child. They would take a lock of their hair, put it in a little glassine envelope, put it in a little box with the picture and the, the lock of their hair. They'd even do fingerprints of them. These are tiny little kids. Put them away. And so if your child was abducted or kidnapped or lost, you could give that information to the police so they could identify. Well, what are they going to identify? If your child is alive, your child will know who you are and you will know who they are. It's if they're not alive and they need to identify the remains. It's a grisly prospect, but parents lined up for this. It's kind of like life insurance. Life insurance doesn't keep you alive. <laughs> you know, life insurance is something you pay so that when you die, somebody has a better day than they would otherwise have. I mean, seriously, one 855 I think parents would like this. Do you agree or do you disagree? Is this just too grisly? Ben says they did this before. And he thinks parents will like it. Another listener says they can't get DNA after something horrible happens. This is just another way for the government to gather and to catalog DNA ahead of time so that they can identify us. And there is absolutely 100% an argument to be made about personal information and privacy. But in this case, you're not giving the DNA to the police. You're keeping it on your mantle or in a shoebox under your bed until something horrible has happened with your child. So I'm not sure that this is an effort by the state to build a DNA catalog of more people. If the government was taking that DNA and holding it on file, then yeah, I think it would be open to that type of criticism. But this is parents, I think, wanting to have some sense of safety or security or coverage when I don't think it really provides that, but I think a lot of parents would like it anyway. Richard in Oakville, is this uh, something parents would want or is it Texas being Texas? Richard, you there? Yeah, can you hear me? I can now. Go ahead. Yeah, um, the whole thing is somebody else trying to be Texas. Texans are usually pretty sensible people. <laughs> and if somebody is, is killed with a gunshot... Um, they're easily identifiable. Anything to think anything less is a false premise. Well, there actually there's some uh, 
some quotations in the in the column from a, a coroner saying otherwise in some of these cases. I don't want to get into the grisliness of it. But. Um, well, it's it's there, there's there's other issues happening. There's other agendas happening here. But basically, um, to, to to talk about it in the context of a school shooting is is a complete fiction. Yeah, I think and, I think that's politics on the part of the yeah. Washington Post. Hundred uh, percent agree with you on that. Yeah, not that the Washington Post is ever political. <laughs> hey, they're, they're all. I used to run a newspaper. We're all political. That's you, know, you have to be. You've got to you got to market to yeah. your audience. You got to sell newspapers. I've, I've heard of Operation Mockingbird. Yes, indeed. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much, Richard. I can honestly say I've never heard of Operation Mockingbird. Uh, but yeah, this I think this is the Washington Post. Uh, it's an editorial. They have a very well established position on uh, gun control in the United States. They're making a point, but uh, I think a lot of parents actually would apply to get this and hold it. Last word on this goes to Peter from Vaughn. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, we're looking at at this probably in a in a bit of a sideways situation. We're looking only at dead children. But, you know, there have been children that have been found many years after they were kidnapped. Yeah, and some of them didn't even know who they were. That's right. So with a DNA database that the parents only give to the police after they've been, you know, kidnapped or disappeared, then, you know, if they test or a DNA test or something happens, fiction between a lost child and the parents. Yep. Peter, thanks very much for making your point. I'm going to cut you off there because your uh, phone keeps dropping out, so we're not really able to hear everything that you're saying. And, uh, Mike, I think you're going to make a point that I've already said uh, nobody needs to make, but I'll give you 30 seconds to make it anyway. In Burlington, go ahead, sir. Yeah, hi. My point was this. So if you if your child were to go missing um, and you provided the police with uh, the kit that they're proposing, what's the difference in giving them you know, their toothbrush or a piece of article that belongs to them that will have their... Uh, their ideas, um, yeah. DNA all over it. No, that's a good. That's a good question. I'm not an expert in DNA, but I would imagine that the sample, if you collect it properly, will have more integrity and so be more useful. I know that if the hair in your hairbrush, for example, doesn't have a follicle attached, there's really no DNA in it. Uh, so you have to get hairs that have come right out of this your scalp, not just ripped off. And on toothbrushes, I don't know. Good question. I don't know whether the uh, the fluoride and all the other stuff in your toothpaste might destroy or break down some of the DNA after a while. And, uh, you know, my kids, meh, they probably didn't brush as much as they should have, so probably not as good. My name is Mark Tui. This is News Talk today. Thanks to Samantha Pope for producing. Thanks to Tony Tedesco for operating the board. Thank you. Have a great day. <laughs>